This morning's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, which you will find on page 987 of your Pew Bibles. So that's Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Guy. What would you say is killing you? I'm talking about on the sort of soul sickness level. I'm talking about the stuff that can suck the life right out of you. So in 2 Corinthians, in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he's got that wonderful couple of sentences. um, Something about, you know, outwardly, in our bodies we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed. And he's talking about that quality of life, that quality of love and, and hope and a strength of joy that is bubbling up, that is, is there in Christ, that is ours, that, that's how things should be, right? Even in the face of significant troubles, even in the face of death, there is this, this quality of life bubbling up. Outwardly, we're wasting away, but inwardly, we're being renewed. But that's not always how it is. This, this quality of life that is on offer is not without opposition. Do you remember... I think it was back in January, um, Rich was preaching and he had this memorable moment where he got um, initially someone to play Jesus and doing this like walk of life. It was Veronica and if I remember rightly she was going a bit off piste and healing a few people on the side. Is anyone there to remember this funny moment? And then he got Nat who, um, Nat Cothurst, one of the youth who is, no, one of the young adults now, um, who was doing the sort of like pilgrim's progress sort of like the, the, the Christian walk the attempt at following Jesus under the power of the spirit he was going and then what happens on the flanks we had like the heavenly host encouraging us along and all of the sort of hymn singing but in the middle there was this opposition there was people like Rob Armstrong jumping out into the aisle and tripping that up and it was that this is the reality of the situation there is stuff that interrupts are attempts at following the way. There's stuff that, that gets in. There is the sin that so easily entangles, as the, the writer in Hebrews puts it. There are things that come in and crush us on the inside, that suck the life, the life out of us, the diseases of the spirit, the infections of the heart, the stuff that robs us of the love and the hope and the joy on the inside. What is it that's killing you? Sometimes it's obvious, a dark secret, addiction, a crushing loneliness, a major disappointment, a bitter resentment. Sometimes it's less obvious. Sometimes it's, we don't even notice it ourselves, our unconscious patterns of consumption or the way we just go about drawing comparisons week after week. 
This is some of the toxic ground that we'll be covering over the next five Sundays. And today's sickness of the soul is one of the subtle ones. And so I've devised a clever diagnostic tool. Um, Dr. House would have been proud of this one to work out whether, you know, we won't do a hands-up thing, but we can just work, you can gauge for yourself whether you are infected with this disease. Okay, so we've got six questions. And the first of them is this. Do you ever, when you're getting into a lift, do you normally press that closed door button multiple times? In, many, in most lifts, I'm told that that, that closed door button is non-functioning, but it's just there to help us feel better about ourselves. Okay, number two. It's a yes-no to all of these. Um, do you ever flush the toilet before finishing your wee? <laughs> I, I, no, says Kath, adamantly. Um, I'm told that happens sometimes. Uh, number three, in traffic, do you find yourself memorizing the makes, models, or the registration plate of the cars in neighboring queues so that you can work out whether you are 10 meters ahead or whether you have slipped 10 meters behind? Number four, still in the car. When driving or traveling, do you find it most pleasing when your, your drive is accompanied by breakfast, um, grooming, a chance to do your hair or shave or do your makeup, whatever applies to you, or, uh, and listen to an audiobook along the same time? Is that the perfect drive? Number five, have you found that function on iPods where you can listen to them in fast forward, like twice the speed. And there's some clever wizardry where by the, the voice is still at the same tempo, but it's still at the same pitch, but it's going twice the tempo. Have you found that one? It's amazing. You can listen to twice. Have you found that one and have you used it? That's number five. And then the sixth diagnostic measure. Do you agree that lunch is best served at the desk with emails? If you answer yes to yourself, for two or more of these things, then there is a very significant chance, I'm afraid, to tell you that you suffer with hurry sickness. And the thing about hurry sickness that you must be aware of is that it's highly contagious. In fact, it has the curious side effect, says Bev Shepherd, of the people who are sick think that they are well, whilst those without the disease are given the impression from those infected that there is something very wrong with them. Hurry sickness is highly contagious, curious side effect of the sick thinking they are well, and those without the disease are given the impression from the infected that there is something wrong with them. Because time becomes this, has become this, this negative status symbol. Those people with a lot of time on their hands, that means, oh, they must be unimportant then. We compliment, we flatter people with, oh, you must be very busy. Um, that's given as a compliment and received as a compliment. Well, yes, I am actually. You know, I don't. If, you're, if ever you're trying to kind of you know flatter me or butter me up, that's not the line to start with. Um, what would be a better line would be something like, "I know you. You know, it's very important that you spend a lot of time sitting and thinking." Um, but you know, that's what I aspire to. That's the that's the goal. Not this like hurry sickness craziness. It's a form of madness, right? In Tokyo. There's this restaurant, this all-you-can-eat restaurant that charges by the minute. And so it's proved so popular for this, the office lunchtime break that, that people will be queuing up 
waiting in line, ironically, outside this restaurant to have their go at this like bargain of consumption and, and time efficiency. How funny is that? Actually sounds quite fun. I'd quite like to have a go at that one. Um, less, less funny is the way that so many of us are living, as though we're always behind schedule, always haunted by this, this nagging sense of unfinished tasks, this lingering fear that we've never quite fulfilled our obligation to our work, to our friends, to our family. We're never quite, we're never quite justifying our own existence. We've never done enough. And living like this, it's not just bad for the blood pressure, um, it's spiritually toxic. So many of the, the sort of, you know, great writers on the spiritual life are lining up to say things like this. Hurry is a form of violence exercised on time, says one. Haste is our enemy. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry, which might be a familiar one. This is familiar ground that we were covering in January. So I'm sure we don't need to go over it again. You've got it all sorted, right? Actually, this epidemic of hurry sickness runs deep, so much so that I'd bet that for many of us, little has changed since January. So unapologetically, we include hurry as this foundational, fundamental kickstart to this list of what is killing us, what is sucking the life out of us. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry, said Dallas Willard. Yet most of us are much better at ruthlessly eliminating all of the little pockets of empty time and spare time that life would afford us, that life would gift to us. That spacious time, the time to reflect, to notice things, to be prayerfully present, to stop. I'm not very um, good at this. Uh, naturally, growing up, um, I had a best, my best friend would always complain, why do you walk so fast as we tried walking somewhere together? Now, his name was Julius. He was Ugandan. And so this was part of the problem because he'd inherited this healthy <laughs> relationship with time. You know that phrase? It's something like, you Europeans have all the watches but we have the time. You know, there's something, there's something like, I can't remember where or when it comes, but that was the kind of difference uh, between me and my friend uh, Julius. I can't remember, this was the time before mobile phones and text messages that got your appointments, you know, you could negotiate them and fill in your time. But I spent hours collectively, perhaps even days or weeks, waiting for Julius, like at the agreed, we're gonna meet here at half past six, you know, and there I would be. Where's Julius? And then, you, then proceeded a stressful half hour of me calculating, well, how long am I going to leave it? I'm going to go for him until, um, you know, 10 past, and then that's it. I'm definitely going 12 past. Okay, should I go now? Oh, what's this going to mean for what we, our plans coming up? And we're going to have to rush and da, da, da. And this is the, whereas I'm sure Julius spent that half an hour making his way in his own time, thinking what he needed to think. Um, this was just the difference between two. And then he would arrive. And then we set off to get, and he's, why are you walking so, what do you mean why are we walking so fast? We're late, we need to get there. And this was how it is. Even today, I am prone to break into a little, I'm walking on my own, so I'm a grown man, 
and I'll be prone to, to breaking into a job, especially if it's a downhill stretch, you know, where you might as well make the most of the, you know, half of the time I'm just excited about what I'm going to do, to be honest, like a little boy. The other half is because I've crammed too much in and I'm running late and I don't like being late and da 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 da. Do you know this inner tension, this adrenaline, this panic, this low, why do we do that? I think, like so many of our subhuman behaviors, it's driven by fear, a fear of missing out. The flip side of that might be this sort of gluttony, this greed for experience, but also a fear of rejection, a fear that somehow our lives are not enough, that we haven't proved ourselves yet enough, that we're not uh, good enough, that we're not accomplishing enough in life, that we're not excited, leading exciting enough lives. All of that stuff. There is this basic and profound anxiety at work underlying our symptoms of hurry sickness. What does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all of you who are weary, who are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Normally, the, the, this is unique, this moment in this tender moment in Matthew's gospel. Normally the invitation out of the lips of Jesus is, come follow me, come after me, come and you know, imitate me. Here he says, come to me in this lovely moment. So he's speaking to anyone who would hear. This isn't this disciples-focused teaching. This is the big invitation moment. Come to me, all who are weary, carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. He's talking about an interior rest. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the deep, deep fixing, the deep adjustment that we all need that speaks to our deepest fears, the stuff that we are unconsciously dysfunctioning out of, the stuff that says your life is not sufficient, not enough, not good enough, not accomplishing enough, not exciting enough. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that his grace is enough. His grace is enough for you and for you who's just disqualified yourself. No, that's not for me because especially for you, especially for me. This grace comes to us as a sheer gift. There's nothing we can do to make God give us more, to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to disqualify ourselves, to make God love us less. It's, a sheer, it's grace. And so do you see how that frantic race that we're all engaged in to squeeze the most out of every um, half hour of downtime, how that frantic race to prove ourselves, to become a bit more, to, it's void suddenly in the wonderful grace of God. We're freed from that tyranny. There's nothing left to prove, nothing left to fear because the deep the deepest truth of things is that we are embraced, that we are qualified, that the future is opening up in the all-sufficient grace of God. And now the new race that is marked out for us, this new race is one of learning to walk in that truth. It's not really a race. Learning to walk in the truth, the assurance of that love. It's not frantic. 
It's not anxiously hurrying along, driven by fear or attempts at self-promotion, but it's learning to walk courageously along a path that looks like selfless love, that looks like Jesus. We are becoming selfless love. I love the thought that Jesus grew up as a carpenter, grew up familiar with these, these yokes, right? So he talks about how my yoke is easy, the burden is light. He grew up presumably having made many of, of such bits of wood that would fit over the, the animal's neck. Tailor-made, they were made individually to the exact animal, apparently. So when he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, is he saying that the demand of my teaching, what I'm asking of you, the invitation of God, the ask of God, it fits you perfectly. You were made for it. So the context of this verse is a contrast with all of the other religiously, the, the Pharisee, um, who were the other leading religious leaders at the time. Um, and they had this burdensome set, hundreds of rules, because if only enough people would keep enough of the rules, be faithful and live the moral life, then God was going to come and make everything better. And Jesus says, no, actually, my yoke, the burden of my teaching is easy, is light. It's not about you keeping hundreds and hundreds of rules to somehow manipulate God into action. It doesn't work like that. The saving action is definitively happening in me. We look back at Jesus and we say that this saving action has definitively happened in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Who are we to therefore carry the weight of the world on our shoulders and feel like we've got to do it again? We've just got to learn to walk according to what has happened. And let's be very clear, this rest for our souls that is on offer, it is not about in some kind of yogic way, learning to float above the, the problems of this world and be untouched by the demands of reality. No, it's about making sure that we're actually able to be present to this world and not rushing along according to our own silly little agendas, but we are properly engaged with reality and the demands of a world in need. And it's our failure to do this that is where the big tragedy of all of this hurry sickness stuff plays out. So in, back in the day, in Princeton University, they ran this experiment. I love a good experiment. I hope you do too. And this one was especially good because it was with ordinance. You know, this group of people who are training to be vicars, especially virtuous in their own heads. Okay, so you've got this group of ordinance, and what they, what they want to do, they're trying to get a handle on whether having this sort of theoretical, like understanding your life to be all about helping other people, does that actually make a difference when it comes to a practical situation? So they, they got the, the group of ordinance and then randomly selected others. And they, what they did was this. They, they gave them an interview on one side of the Princeton campus in New Jersey. Um, and just as the interview was coming to a close at a specified time, um, they said, and what we'd like you to do next is go over to this classroom, which was a classroom right on the other side of the, the campus, and deliver 
a talk, a short talk to the class that are waiting there, and they're expecting you to start in four minutes' time. Sorry, we've overrun a little bit. Um, they set it up so that this person was forced to be in a hurry to get there, okay? And they thought the next part of this research that they'd, you know, they'd answered the interview bit, and now they had to go and do the little... They were in a hurry. They had to go there. What, there wasn't really a class waiting for them. Halfway across the campus, there were actors who were pretending to be in a situation of some distress and appealing to this um, person, this ordinand walking across the campus to help. The question was, would the ordinand stop to help? Um, would, you be more, would the group of ordinands be statistically more likely to be those who stopped to help than the group of drawn from the random normal drawn randomly from the, the rest of the population? The answer was, it had no effect. <laughs> the, uh, the only thing that had an effect was the level of hurry that they were, the, they were put under. So they did it again with less of a hurry, and more people stopped to help. What does this mean? It seems that this selfless love thing that we are called to gets lost as we rush. As the speed of our lives increase, morality becomes a bit of a luxury. It becomes something expendable. As the time pressures come upon us, we fail to see a particular situation as a moral one. No matter how holy we think we might be, hurry squeezes out compassion. It stops us from being present. It stops us noticing. It stops us being able to walk this path of selfless love. And that's tragic, because this is really important. This path is what we're made for. So what should we do? How can we learn to slow down and walk in this unforced rhythm, the, the Julius-style pace, rather than the Owen run, skip, and a jump through life way of doing things. Just two things I've got. Number one, you can start by stopping. So when I was at Vicar School, I didn't undergo, not to my knowledge, any intrusive um, research experiments, um, seeing how empathetic and good I was. But the course that I signed up for, um, the demand, I found the demands of it really difficult. And so I had each week I had about three days to read through a pile of ten books, which was a new relationship to reading for me. I was used to sort of, you know, a week, uh, you know, a week of holiday with one book where you just read. And this was, I had to be like, aggressive. You had, you had to learn, I mean, some of you have been familiar with this from the demands of your work, I'm sure, but I had to like aggressively read and read at pace and learn to gut and just like read the first chapter, the last chapter, the relevant chapter and move on and Front foot, front foot, front foot. And it was hard work, and it was, you know, back-to-back -back weeks of choof, 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 choof. To offset the inevitable hurry that was my situation, um, I got in the habit of, right at the beginning of the, the first thing of the, the new term, was putting into the diary just a day of retreat, to go with no demands, to, to get familiar with the stillness, with silence, with 
letting my soul catch, getting hold of my soul, because you kind of lose, you run ahead of your soul and you need to stop and catch up sometimes. And, and that's what this little retreat did, was just get familiar with that place that you could remember, you could more easily come back into when you needed to, when you had 10 minutes in the midst of a otherwise too busy day. So that was good. Another thing I started doing was, was taking the long route in in the morning. And so we lived just 40 meters away from where most of my first class of the day or the first little chapel meeting was, was supposed to happen. And after a term of, you know, I was one of the closest, therefore I was always one of the most frantic to, to get there, right? Like pile of books. The Bible that I had then through Vicar College is broken on its spine because at one time I tripped on the road when I was a big pile of books and this one flew across the road and it's got the indents of the gravel from where it... And I was like, this isn't great for me. So what am I going to do? And I started taking the long routes round. And so I'd walk the opposite away from college initially, come round, and then there was a nice little path along the park. And one morning, I was walking on my little long attempt at just space, solitude, stillness, prayer, before everything got going again. And in front of me, I notice a chap called Marcus Bockmuel, who's a leading New Testament scholar, one of the professors at the university, and he's walking 20 meters ahead. I was like, oh, we're on the same commute. And, and as I'm walking along, I don't know what that means, but the liar's just gone off. As I'm walking, the light's about to go on for you, I'm sure. And um, as I'm walking along, he, I, I see him stop. It's, it's, you know when you have these like, figures who you've seen at the front of the lecture hall, and then suddenly you see him, it's quite fascinating. I'm like, what's he doing? And he crouches down, and he whips out his phone, and he's taking a photo of something. And I slow down, because I don't want to overtake this moment. I want to watch it for as long as possible. And off he goes again. And I get to where he was. And he'd taken a little photo of a little snowdrop, a little flower breaking through. And I just thought, what a hero on, on another level now. He is, he is present. He is noticing. He has time in his world, whatever, to stop and to notice. And there's a lesson there for me. Um, so in Hebrew, there's a word called kadesh, which is the word for holy. So it's quite a significant word in the Bible. Perhaps more than, arguably more than any other word for getting a handle on the mystery and majesty of God, kadesh. Last trivia question for you. Maybe the first trivia question for you today. Um, where does it first appear? What's the first thing that is branded Kadesh, holy, in the Bible? What do you think that might be? A psalm? No. But that would be good. Sabbath, we have the right answer. It's not a mountain. Some holy mount. It's not some holy place, not some holy altar. It's not even a person. It's Sabbath. On the seventh day, God set it apart as, as holy. Time. There's this, there's this um, sentence, again, I'm going to murder it, but it's something like, um, you have the, the cathedrals in space, and we have built these sanctuaries in time. The sort of Jewish wisdom of understanding the, the hallowing, the, the sacredness of time, setting apart space in the calendar 
to be holy, for prayer, for reverence, for noticing, for rehumanizing, for allowing your soul to catch up with you, to stand in resistance to all that would take us down. Time is sacred. God made it. He made enough of it. We can receive it as a gift and not do a violence with our incessant hurrying. Daily stillness, a weekly Sabbath, a regular retreat. How are you doing with that? Get your diary out this afternoon. Have another refresh, reset. It's so worth it. We need it. I wouldn't be afraid of mixing a couple more strategic inefficiencies as well, like walking the long route, the more beautiful route, speaking to some, someone who simply refused to get a dishwasher because he really, that was his thing, this was his moment where in the evening he would wash the dishes and it was this moment of stillness protected structurally in place for him. And I thought there was wisdom there. And the other thing, just real quick, let's prioritize compassion. We've seen how this slips out. Hopefully we've agreed that this is what Jesus is calling us to be. This is an important hallmark of, of who we are, of who we're learning to be. So we've got to restate it to not, to not miss the point. It's not about making, developing some calm, meditative spirituality that floats above everything. It's about learning to be present, to be responsive. And of course, it doesn't always mean no haste and hurry. Jesus, there's recorded several times in the Bible where he is, he is kind of like, we might say overworked, where he hasn't even had time to eat. You know, This is reality. This is sometimes what happens. But you balance that with then doing a Jesus and retreating up the mountain or wherever into the quiet place. Listening to the responders, some of the stories of responders to the Grenfell tragedy this last week. You know, obviously the, the right, the compassionate response is for that doctor to get up at two o'clock in the morning to get in to utterly spend himself all day long until he's stood down by his manager, you know. This is what the world demands of us sometimes, but it's not the, it's not the same as the hurry that is driven by the, the fear and the self-promotion and the fear of missing out and all of that. Okay, the path of selfless love is costly. It's not cozy, but it is one. As we learn to trust the grace of God, that has this quality of life and joy and hope bubbling up, unthreatened, growing stronger. Do you trust the grace of God? Show it by stopping regularly, even if this means disappointing people, and it will. That's okay. Do you trust the grace of God? Then show it to all sorts of other people with your gift of attention and time. It's about people and moments. Don't miss them. Fathers, today, don't miss them. Amen. Let's stand and pray together. I think we've about run out of time, so we're going to just pause. So what I really wanted to do was um, have five minutes, an awkward 
five minutes introduction to silence and stillness and just gift us that. Um, but the children, children's team will not thank us for that. Um, so we're not going to do that. We'll have probably 30 seconds after I've prayed of stillness and quiet before a final blessing. We'd love to pray with you as ever if you've come and need some prayer, need someone to speak with, come, uh, don't, don't hesitate to, to come and find us. There'll be a group of us down at the front for that. Um, but let's pray. And God, where we have left our souls behind, where fatigue has drowned out gratitude, where we've failed to trust in your grace, Come, Spirit of God, and refresh us. Come, slow us down from our frantic running into a better walk. Give us wisdom. Give us courage. Thank you. According to the prophet Isaiah, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. May the Lord bless you with wisdom and rest for your soul and presence with people you love the most and time to stop for those you've only just met. And so with the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, rest upon you now and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Have a great day. See you next week.